I am here um, with Eric Asimov. Um, it is July 28th, um, 2017 in Nicholson Library. My name is Stephanie Hoffman. And the first question um, we'll start off with is why wine? Well, I'm very um, privileged to be able to have anything to do with wine. I'm a journalist, um, and I've, uh, but I've been in love with wine longer than I've uh, been a journalist. Uh, I discovered it when I was a, a teenager, when I discovered food. And um, at the time, it never occurred to me that I would be able to professionally have anything to do with wine and food. But um, as things turned out, uh, I was a failed academic and needed a job and thought I could get a job in journalism. and. And I did. And uh, I was hired by the New York Times shortly after I had my first job. And uh, I was in national news. And, you know, it wasn't, journalism for me was not a, a passionate love affair, but food and wine was. And in my spare time, I, I thought maybe I could write some. Uh, food and wine stories uh, for our food section and because I was not on their staff they would pay me extra <laughs> so there was a, a financial incentive to do that as well and uh, that's how I uh, began writing about food and wine at the times and within a few years I was doing that full-time um, so, to you, what makes wine special? Why do you write about it? Or why do you like to write about it? Um, well, you know, there are so many different levels to wine. Um, first of all is just the, um, the delicious, deliciousness and the pleasure of wine. It makes, uh, it makes a meal better. It makes it more convivial. It uh, in encourages friendship, uh, encourages conversation, and you know that's that's just a beginning. Because for me, um, although what's in the glass is a pleasure and is fascinating, it's in, in some ways the least interesting part of wine. Um, the the stories that go with wine. Uh, the people who make it, uh, the place where it comes from, the uh, politics and, and economics of the wine business, the uh, aesthetic uh, debates that go on all the time, uh, these are all fascinating. But I think most exciting to me is to think of wine as an expression of culture particularly in the old world where wine is a product of a community and it has been for, for centuries. And in the same way that, that communities created recipes for their food or songs or dances, they created wine as a, as a form of expression. And to see how that um, continues today um, is is fascinating to me, and you would think that in in our modern connected internet world, uh, 
there wouldn't be so much else to discover. But I, I kind of feel like all I do is explore, or much of what I do is explore and, and discover um, wines that, that nobody ever heard of 20 years ago are available all around the world today. I mean, it's really the greatest time in, in history to, to be a wine lover. And if you're, to if you're open to everything that's available, it's just a, a never-ending um, sense of discovery. And that's not even, you know, the new vintage that comes through every year, uh, the different interaction between, between uh, the human touch and the place and the, and the climate. Uh, there's just so much uh, going on that it's, a, it, it's interesting and it's always a challenge to, to write about. Um, before, I, I, I've been the wine critic at the New York Times since 2004. Before I did that, uh, I reviewed restaurants for, for many years. And just as a, as a uh, writing form, uh, for me, uh, the restaurant review is, a, is very limiting, you know, it's, and, it, and it's a challenge to figure out how to operate within those limits. But the um, uh, wine writing is much more free form. There are just many more different areas uh, to cover and to write about. So how do you decide with so many different things that are involved with not only the actual product of wine or what, what comes from it, how do you decide what to write about? Um, well, uh, I want to, uh, certainly I want to offer a consumer service in um, helping people uh, get to know wine better. Um, and I want to write about things that interest me. And I would like to feel that I have very wide-ranging interests in, in wine so that I'm not always uh, very narrowly focused. But, um, you know, it has to be interesting to me. Um, that said, there are, there are so many uh, different sorts of wines from so many different kinds of places and so many different kinds of stories that um, I never really feel at a loss. In fact, I, I, the problem is uh, with a column that appears once a week, uh, how do I fit in everything I want to, to write about? Um, so you kind of mentioned this a little bit, but what are some of the challenges of writing about wine, and um, what are your favorite parts about it? Um, you know, I, challenges are, um, are maybe uh, personal, and it's hard to say. I mean, I think I have the greatest job in the world, and I'm, I'm privileged to, to work for a place like the New York Times and to write about a subject that I care about as much as, um, as wine. And so it doesn't feel like work to me. Uh, every, every, all the time I spend doing my job is, is fun. Um, so, you know, the challenges uh, are, are the challenges I think that any writer faces. 
you know, procrastination, deadlines, um, you know, trying to figure out how to do something that's not formulaic. Um, one of the, the, maybe one of the challenges that I, I faced earlier on was overcoming the um, uh, both conventional wisdom and the uh, conventional sense of how one was to write about wine. Um, and these are, are very powerful in wine because um, many of, of the experiences that we have with wine um, are, are vicarious. You know, we, we can't all have uh, old Grand Cru Burgundy. We can't all visit the regions. Um, and so we rely on, or, or people in general, rely a lot on, on textbooks. And uh, for me, early on, it, it took me a little while, and I needed some experience to, to realize that a lot of what is repeated and accepted was really um, old thinking, uh, you know, 19th century, uh, 20th century conventional wisdom in the 21st century where it really wasn't true anymore. And so it, it took a while to learn that, you know, you can't, you can't rely on what somebody else has said, no matter how authoritative. Um, a lot of things you have to find out for yourself. And and you have to be able to see the difference between what an authority has said and what you see and, and then be able to, to go with your own experience. Um, that's one thing. The other thing has been to um, overcome the, the notion that uh, in the 1990s and the early part of this century, in this country that the only way to write about wine was to write tasting notes. And to me, um, tasting notes have always been um, counterproductive. They don't, they don't tell you how a wine tastes. Um, they are useful as sort of uh, individual mnemonic devices. If I, want, if I can write some notes so I can remember my own experience of this wine, but if you were to compare, and I did this for, for a book I wrote, if you were to compare uh, tasting notes from different critics uh, about the same wine, they're totally different. So how do you, what does it mean? What, what does it mean when some person, one person says strawberry and the next person says gooseberry and the third person says fig compote? It doesn't really mean anything. So I had, I wanted to think of a better way to communicate um, uh, about wine. And, and the first thing I, I realized for myself is that describing all those aromas and flavors is really the least interesting thing you can do. It's, uh, it, doesn't, it, it just makes it sound as if you know what you're talking about. Um, and really, it's, uh, if you're going to be talking about a particular wine, you have to speak more generally. Uh, you can talk about the structure. You can talk about the uh, acidity or sweetness, hopefully not using those uh, 
uh, jargon or industry terms, but, but to, you can put it in more um, accessible terms. But um, there are other ways to inspire people to, to be interested in wine uh, by telling the story of, of, of people places, the role wine has had in their culture, how things have developed uh, as they have, um, and, and also to talk about my own experiences, not, uh, not in a, in, as a role model, but hopefully just as a as inspiration in, in the sense of one, this is the way one person experiences wine joyfully and, and with great pleasure and with curiosity. Um, so what would you say um, is your, if you have one, your wine writing or just writing philosophy? Um, I, you know, it, it maybe it sounds a little bit grandiose to to say I have a wine a writing philosophy, but um, you know, I just I just try to write as uh, clearly um, with a minimum of of jargon. Um, hopefully, uh, at least a little bit entertaining, um, and. And really, uh, I want to be um, as down to earth as possible. I think, you know, specifically about wine again, um, maybe, and this is possibly true, uh, possibly diminishing now, there's a lot of wine anxiety in this country. You know, people find wine intimidating, and that's not, that's not news. Um, but they do, and why? Why do they find it intimidating? And I, my theory has to do with scores and tasting notes. People read the way experts talk about wine. They say in tasting notes, and then they drink the wine, and they—it's not the way they experience it. So they think there's something wrong with them. They don't have the right equipment. They don't have the capability to understand wine. Um, and then they look at scores, and you know the the always the uh, the at least in years past the bigger, uh, more powerful, fruitier wines would get higher scores, and the the leaner, fresher wines wouldn't. And this is really a a stylistic uh, judgment more than anything else by the critics. Then, and most people, I think, if they're just you know at home on a on a Tuesday night, and they're just uh, eating with uh, family, and that the lean, fresh wine is always going to be better than than the bigger, powerful wine. But but the bigger, powerful wine was scored higher. So again, people say, "Oh well, I guess I just don't understand wine. It's not. Uh, I don't have the capability to to do it." Um, and they kind of throw up their hands. And so I, I want to um, be able to, to speak to people and, and encourage them to enjoy wine for themselves, not, not to uh, think about what, how wine is supposed to taste, 
but to taste it for themselves and not worry about there being right answers or wrong answers. And I want them to understand that there's no such thing as the best wine. And, you know, the this the hundred point scale, which puts everything on on a single universal scale, is extremely misleading because wine it ha it has to be understood in context. You can't have a uh, a best a single best wine, but you can have a a good wine for the occasion, the best wine for the occasion. And sometimes that that calls for uh, a wine that's not going to be rated as highly by critics and so we have to put that thinking aside and start thinking about wine in a different way. What is the occasion? Uh, who am I with? What is the food? What's a good wine uh, for this moment? So for people that um, aren't that experienced in wine, maybe they do have this wine anxiety and how would you tell them to start to get into um, not just the barefoots of the world, but getting into more um, finer wines? Like, how would you tell them to start doing that? Well, um, that's a good question. And I um, started uh, a column um, in 2014 called Wine School. And this is based on an idea I had long before high-speed internet. Um, where the best way to learn about wine, if you are new to wine, somewhat new to wine, is not to buy a book, not to take a class, not to get a wine magazine, but to find a good wine shop. And go to that wine shop, buy a mixed case of wine, bring them home over the course of whatever uh, period, it's a month, two months, uh, drink those wines with dinner with your family and keep track of what you liked and what you didn't like. And when you're done with that case, go back and get another mixed case and but tell the wine merchant, you know, the here's the last case I bought, this is what I liked, this is what I didn't like. You can even conjecture to think about why. Uh, and um, and do it again. And over time, patterns emerge. You 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 get a sense of what you what you like and what you don't, and why. And this is the beginning of developing your own taste, which I think is the most important thing that that people can do. So years later. Uh, now we have high-speed internet and people can uh, uh, actually have a conversation very easily online. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe we can put this into practice. Uh, I, each, so each month now I suggest a certain sort of wine uh, for people to buy and I give them a few examples. and. And they go out and get the wines, and over the course of, of a month, um, drink the wine, and and uh, they talk about it in the comments section. They talk about it in emails to me. They talk about it in emails to each other. People have um, gotten together. They they have tasting groups. It's it's been 
you know, sort of uh, international in uh, Canada, Japan, <laughs> Europe, China. Um, and it's really interesting because people on, on the one hand have been uh, uh, trying wines that they might not have thought that they would like. Um, they're trying wines that they're pretty sure they don't like. Um, and, and we're all learning something together. And people are, are you know, it's now been about uh, three years that we've been doing it. It has problems because in this country, and it, you can't always find the wines that I'm recommending, and, and certainly in different parts of the country, it's all the, the, the selections are different. But it's been really successful in, in getting people to try new things and to um, uh, make up their own mind about what they think about the wine and not, you know, uh, think of it only in terms of what a critic said. And so, you know, this subversive idea, which is just, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a pipe dream, but the idea is to get people to, to rely on themselves so they don't need people to tell them what they should drink. Um, so you write about this often, you've kind of talked about it a little bit, but um, why do you think we should talk about wine as food and with food? Um, well, this is all part of, of feeling comfortable with wine. That's, that's the first part. I've suggested uh, thinking of wine as food uh, because it's, it's, it's uh, disarming to think of wine as just another staple of the table. It's like bread or rice or, or other things that we just, we just have and we don't, we don't have to uh, you know, gear ourselves up to, to drink it. It's not a, we don't have the, uh, there's not a drama uh, when you go to a restaurant of, uh, of ordering the hamburger but, but the bottle of wine is, is a tense moment for a lot of people. So it's partly just to, just to think of it as an ordinary part of life, take it down from a pedestal and, and um, you know, wine can be very special, as can any other food, but it doesn't have to be. It can also be uh, ordinary in the best sense of the word. Um, the second reason is that, you know, we've become very conscious of how we eat in this country. Um, more and more people, uh, they want to know where their food comes from. Uh, was, it, was it grown organically? Was it raised humanely? Um, is it local? Is it, for, you know, this sort of thing. And people who, um, who care about the, the uh, healthfulness and the uh, ethics of, of what they eat forget about the wine, which can be as manipulated um, and, and um, processed as food that they prefer not to eat. 
So I think that there's a definitely a correlation between um, minimal processing for wine, just as I do for food. And if people were able to um, ask for this in, in their wines, it would immediately improve the quality of, of what they drink. It's not, you know, that's not to say that all wines um, that are minimally processed are all good. There's still a whole range of, of styles and competencies among the winemakers, but, um, but the chances are you're going to drink better wine than, than you are if you're buying you know, something that comes from a tank farm and sold in a supermarket. Um, and then the third thing, you know, aside from better wine, uh, the joy of wine is that it's changeable. You don't know what you're going to get. Um, this has a, a, a occasional downsides. Maybe you get a, a bottle that's not in the best condition, or or, or it's not the best time to drink it. But it, it but the the joys of that far outweigh the um, disadvantages. You're you're getting uh, something that's alive. Um, that evolves, that's complex, and, and um, this is what wine lovers live for. Uh, the, the stuff that's processed maximally is essentially a, a shelf-stable soft drink that has been uh, designed and manufactured to meet specifications. And, and to me, that's not, that's not what makes wine interesting. It's just a, a alcohol delivery system. Um, so what region, uh, or what right now, what region, what vintage, or what varietal makes you the most excited? <laughs> well, I mean, I can't be that uh, narrowly focused because I've got like a whole bunch of stories to do. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I'm, uh, First of all, um, I, I'm so excited by the new uh, wines that, that I've found in the last 10 years, whether it's uh, a Sirtico from, from the Greek island of Santorini, um, the, the wonderful wines coming from Sicily and other southern Italian regions, um, uh, ferment, dry ferment from Hungary, uh, Slovenia, um, you know, all, all of these um, areas in the old world that have been making wine for centuries but, but were never discovered, they just, uh, wine that was just sold locally essentially, that's now available and is just a, a another um, uh, option another good option. And I'm also really excited uh, in, in our own country how um, uh, things have been evolving in the, in the last 10 years or so. You know, we've, we've, we've gone from a, a place that was somewhat monochrome in style, um, in, particularly in California, but, but I'm not omitting Oregon from that. Uh, to a, a, a wine regions that have a far greater diversity of, of styles and, and flavors and options for, 
support consumers, and um, I think this is a, a wonderful thing. I also think that uh, in, in the country, we're much more um, conscious of food, of wine expressing a, a sense of place, of being able to go with food, of freshness in, in wine, and um, less concern with achieving scores, although it's still important for some people. Um, and I think, you know, all over the world where there has been this monochromatic style, uh, whether it was in Australia, at least among, among the wines that we were able to get here, um, Spain, uh, South America, uh, you're you're just seeing far more experimentation and and uh, individuation and diversity and and that makes me very excited. Well, since you are in Oregon right now, um, you obviously have experienced the industry firsthand and the wines here. What do you think of the Oregon wine industry? Um, I think it's great. I think I, I'm so impressed over the last 10 years by the, um, the elevation of, of quality here. Um, this has to do with, uh, uh, certainly with Pinot Noir, where, where this, the, the diversity of, of styles, as, as I said, is, is far greater. But uh, the Chardonnay is, has gotten really good in Oregon. And I'm not sure if that is just a question of uh, selecting better clones, as some people have suggested, or simply that winemakers have um, more experience and more confidence in what they're doing. Uh, but it's the the uh, improvement is is notable. Um, and then the third thing that, that I find fascinating is the amount of experimentation that's been going on. Um, most obviously, uh, the people who are, who are making Gamay, which is, uh, I, I think it's really good. But, um, you know, I've been speaking with uh, growers who have uh, dozens of different grapes in their vineyard. Um, not because they, they think that Pinot Noir isn't the, you know, the signature grape, the red grape of the Willamette Valley, but because it's not the only narrative that, that Oregon has to, to tell right now, Oregon, uh, uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And so, you know, I've tasted uh, uh, ferment and aligoté and, and uh, uh, Gruner Veltliner and Nebbiolo and Dolcetto and you know not all of them are successful but uh, some of them are are, are really interesting and um, it's worth it's worth uh, this experimentation is important because um, you know you you need more flavors than the than the leading flavor you know I, uh, Oregon Pinot Noir has gotten to a point where the good ones are, are kind of expensive. And, and people need things to drink when they're not willing to spend $60 a bottle or, or whatever. And I don't think the answer is like knock off expensive Pinot Noir. 
uh, although I've had some excellent $20 uh, Pinots from the Willamette, it's uh, finding other grapes that, that maybe can be grown in areas that are not as, as valuable, uh, where the, uh, in where you don't have to charge uh, as much. And that's always a, a difficult proposition for American producers who, you know, by, by nature, we all want to make the best. And so if Pinot Noir is considered the best or among the elite grapes, that's where people want to go. It's, um, it, it's harder to say, maybe you don't want to make the best wine in the world. Maybe you just want to make the best wine from your plot of earth. And maybe your plot of earth can make really good gamay or something else. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a process that takes a long time. And, you know, Oregon is, wine industry is, is what, about uh, less than 50 years old. And, um, I mean, that's a fraction of the time. You know, it took a thousand years for the monks to decide where to put the, the, the grapes in Burgundy or where the best places were. So. It's an enormous amount has been accomplished in that time here in Oregon. Um, talking a little bit more about Pinot Noir, um, in the book um, Passion for Pinot, we wrote the foreword. Um, you said, uh, no matter which new clones of Pinot Noir are planted in which types of soil, monitored by which type of gauges, or transformed into wine by which sort of contraptions, Pinot Noir will always have its way. Uh, what did you mean about that? Um, I mean that it is a, uh, among red grapes, uh, perhaps the most transparent grape. And if you plant it in the wrong place or care for it in the wrong way, it's, it's, it's not going to do what you want it to do. It's going to do what it wants to do. And so you have to be very careful with Pinot Noir. The, the place matters, the, um, the climate matters, the way you transform it into wine matters. And, and you know, all of these things have given it a reputation as a very um, kind of delicate, um, needy grape. And I don't know if uh, ultimately it, it deserves that reputation, but, um, but it's definitely sensitive. Um, you were in the um, Grand Seminar um, mm -hmm. to earlier today, and it was all about the French influence and, pe and people from France making wine in Oregon. Can you talk a little bit about that French influence and how it's shaped the Oregon wine industry or that relationship? Well. Um, by French influence, we're really talking about the Burgundian influence, mm -hmm. and you know the the power of Burgundy is such that it's now it's kind of the archetype for the wine region that every almost every other place in the world wants to be, um, making uh, small lots of wine that are expressive of terroir where you're the um, you know you're both the grower and the winemaker the vigneron 
And that's been a, a evolution from, if you go back to like the 80s in Napa Valley, the model was Bordeaux, and you saw, you see uh, much bigger estates with uh, the grand kind of uh, chateau-like uh, visitor centers and things like that. Um, so it's, it's much, much different. And because Burgundy is so powerful, um, its influence uh, can be very great for, for Pinot Noir producers. I mean, you have to come to terms with the example of Burgundy, but also uh, with going your own way. And I think, uh, you know, Oregon in particular has grappled with that really well. Um, partly because uh, it's attracted uh, Burgundians more so than, than other Pinot Noir regions, uh, beginning with uh, the Druins. And, um, and the Burgundians themselves have set the example of embracing the, the influence of Burgundy without trying to emulate it, knowing that this is a different place and you have to make a, a different kind of wine, but that there is this example for what the beauty of, of Pinot Noir can be, and Chardonnay for that matter, um, and that this is a, a sort of a benchmark for wines of, of finesse and grace and, and beauty, which is really what uh, Pinot Noir and, and Chardonnay want to be. So you have uh, you know, a, a confluence of, of growers in Oregon, producers in Oregon, who are fascinated with Burgundy and Burgundians who are fascinated with, uh, with Oregon, so you have the opportunity for a lot of uh, interchange there. And um, I think, you know, it, it may be a little presumptuous of me to, to, to say, but um, I think that the um, Burgundians who have come here have been uh, modest in the sense that they don't, have not come here to tell, you know, the, the people how it's supposed to be done. They've been open to, to learning from the people who've been working in this area for, for much longer. And uh, the people in Oregon have been uh, open to what they can learn from um, their Burgundians who have been making such uh, beautiful wine with the same grapes in their very different place. So it, it's been an opportunity for, for harmony and communication, and uh, it's, it seems as if that's worked out pretty well. Um, what are your thoughts on IPNC since you've been here four times? Um, and yeah, just what do you think of it? Um, I think it's, uh, it's been a model wine festival. Uh, the times that I've been here, it's been really well um, organized. It's a, it's a beautiful campus here at Linfield. Um, it's, it's calm, it's leisurely, but there are, or it has its rigorous moments, and it's a great um, gathering of, of Pinot Noir producers from all over the, the wine world, and so I really enjoy it. And I mean, it's not 
it shouldn't be lost on anybody that it's, it was just a brilliant uh, marketing device for the Oregon wine producers to, uh, to bring all these people here and to have uh, Oregon identified so uh, tightly with Pinot Noir. Um, you know, I, I, I see people trying to emulate that uh, in other parts of the world, like New Zealand now. Um, so it's a combination of, of, a, of a great idea, a great um, educational opportunity for a lot of people, including me, especially me, and, uh, and, and just a great time. And, and I should add to that, um, you know, one, you happen to have uh, here in the Willamette because it's it's so um, near Portland. I mean, it's it's the rare uh, wine region that has that is just so close, and you have a uh, a set of really interesting and and and. Uh, generous and, and uh, regionally minded chefs in uh, Portland that you can, you really do the wine and food uh, uh, thing very well and, and put them together in a way that is, uh, I think, in, inspiring and, uh, and, and conveys the message that, that wine and food belong together. Um, so going a little bit more broader now to um, the American um, wine industry and wine culture, um, what do you think, um, what is the um, wine culture in America right now? Um, I would say the, the wine culture in America is evolving. Um, you know, for a, a long time, uh, we were um, novices and we needed a lot of hand-holding. Uh, you know, what, how do you drink wine? What do you, what do you serve particular wines with? Um, which wine do I choose? And th this is where the, um, uh, you know, the scores and tasting notes uh, came about and the very sorts of, uh, um, uh, elaborate guides, uh, you know, detailing the the uh, four ways or, or the dozen ways that you could determine which wine pairs with wheat, which food by this formula or measuring acid level, you know, all, all of these kind of uh, crazy things. But when, um, when people start to become more comfortable with wine, and the generation that started reading uh, Wine Spectator and, and Robert Parker in, in the early 80s um, now has their own kids who grew up with wine on the table. Um, less hand-holding is, is needed. And so you have a different, um, uh, I would like to think, more adult conversation where, where people are um, exchanging ideas about wine and it's less directed to how, how you, what you do with it. And, um, you know, it's interesting that you, you see it uh, uh, going on in other countries. Um, you know, you saw it in, in 
maybe 20 or 30 years ago, a little bit after it started here in the US, you saw it in Japan. And now in Japan, people are, are far more confident in wine. You see it in uh, China and other parts of Asia, and it's no, um, and, it, and it's a reason why uh, the wine advocate is putting much more of its effort into Asia because there's a demand for that sort of, of hand-holding. Um, so I think the American wine culture is uh, evolved and having just, it, it just feels like a more um, a, adult sort of conversation. Uh, I feel in a large way that we've kind of left the culture wars of, of 10 years ago behind or starting to. I mean, there's still a lot of uh, raging about natural wines that, that goes on. Um, but I, I, it just feels like a more grown-up situation, and now you know we can all um, enjoy wine uh, as peers rather than um, needing the, this top-down. Uh, uh, I'm going to tell you what to do. Interestingly, um, in my opinion, in countries like France and Italy where they grew up with wine and everybody is very comfortable with wine, um, they have to go through the same process because their uh, comfort level was built on, on their lack of choice in a way. Everybody just drank the local wine. That's what you drank. And maybe occasionally you got a, a fancy wine from Bordeaux or whatever, but, uh, but there wasn't that much of an issue. Now they too are facing wider choices. Um, wine is on the table less often. Uh, it's a different kind of wine than it was 50 years ago. So there's a, a lot of, um, especially among younger people, uh, there's, they have begun to learn about wines like, like people in America or England or uh, other countries. And how do you think the younger people in America, um, um, some of them have grown up with wine on the table, as you said, but some of them haven't, and now um, they're getting to where they're able to purchase wine and purchase solely more expensive wines. Um, what, how do you think they're going to take on? Do you think it's gonna be the same way that you mentioned before with the, um, their knowledge of wine and wine culture, or do you think it's gonna be different? Um, I think uh, younger people are going to feel a lot more comfortable with wine than, say, people of, of my generation. Um, more of them have grown up with wine, but, but they've also grown up with a, a much greater degree of discernment than, uh, than say, I did. Um, you know, when I was a kid, it was a time of, of, of you know, you had TV dinners, instant coffee, um, you know, beer was Budweiser or Miller, or um, you know, there, you just uh, there wasn't weren't that many options. Now, uh, younger people have, uh, you know, there, there's far more consciousness of of quality in food, far more choices about where you shop. Um, there's uh, people they see their parents drinking craft beer. Um, when they're when they're old enough, they get interested in cocktails, and it's you know it's not like drinking screwdrivers out of a bottle. 
you're you're you know you're going to the lounge and and people there are you know they've made their own tinctures and and uh, and the you know real uh, juices so there's a much higher uh, consciousness of quality in all things and that applies to wine too they understand that um, you know how how to um, how to judge things. They may not know all the the names and the places and and the rigmarole that sometimes uh, goes with wine. But they just they understand how to um, to think about it and and how to think about the occasion better. Um. The the only problem uh, for young people and it's a serious problem is that wines. Um, a lot of good wines have gotten so expensive, and it's and it's very sad that uh, young people have virtually no chance to to drink Grand Cru Burgundy, for example, um, unless they're wealthy or unless they know someone who's wealthy. Um, and you know, on the on the bright side, there are a lot of other great wines that they can drink now that are more affordable. But um, you want to be able to taste these historic wines um, just to just to create a context for understanding other wines. And and it's I, I don't like the fact that that a lot of wines are now luxury goods. Um, you know. Uh, bought or owned by people who really don't care about wine, but it's it's either status or investment or um, uh, or, or for some some other reason than the love of wine. Do you think that's going to change, or do you think wine is just going to keep getting more expensive? I don't really see that changing. I mean, I don't. I don't see a uh, the demand for Burgundy crashing. It, it's very much like um, real estate. Um, and forgive me, I'm going to get on my political uh, pet, uh, uh, soapbox for a moment. But when you have a great income disparity in the world, uh, people with a lot of money uh, can pay whatever it takes to get what they want, whether it's uh, you know, an apartment in Manhattan or London or, or the best car or the best watch or the best bottle of wine. And because there's no relationship between value uh, and, and cost, because they have so much money, um, they end up with a disproportionate amount and the price goes up for everybody. And as long as we have that disparity, I don't, I don't ever see it changing in wine. I, I just see more, uh, more wines going in that direction. And of course, you know, the demand is so much greater. Uh, you know, when, once you've introduced uh, uh, great wines, Burgundy, which is in such short supply to Asia um, and other parts of the world, you know, there's just not enough to go around. Um, do you think wine regions that are um, like New World wine regions, like the Americas and um, like New Zealand, do you think the wines there are going to start trying to get up to that price range? Like maybe not at that expensive, but keep going up? Or do you think they're going to try to stay closer to the people that can buy it? Um, well, I think you know, it's. Uh, I think most producers will 
want to get what they think their wine is worth. Um, and it doesn't, it's not really up to the producers, although, you know, uh, uh, I think the, you know, the first uh, sparkling wine in California, for example, uh, uh, the, uh, a, the, there was a sparkling wine in California that was, uh, the price was set at above $100. And why? Uh, because that's what Krug charges and we think our wines are among the best in the world. So there's a natural elevation. Um, but then you can't blame producers for getting whatever they want because if a wine is in short supply, um, you know, uh, uh, Domaine de la Romane Conti could say, you know, this is ridiculous that um, people are paying $800 for our, our bottle of our Echazo. We're going to charge $100 for it. Well, the, the people who buy those wines for $100 are just going to turn around and sell them for $800. So they're not going to be available to more people. It's just that the profits will go to middle, middle people rather than to the producers. And that, that's, that doesn't feel right to me. I don't really have a, a solution. And I don't, you know, it's not really, it, it's really the market that sets the price. Um, and then you talked a little bit about the future of the wine culture in America. Do you have any thoughts on the future of the actual industry, of the people who produce the wine in America? What um, is in the future for them? Um, I have hopes. Yeah. Um, I, I, I hope that um, we can maintain as, as many um, small uh, production wineries as, as possible. You know, there's been a lot of, of uh, buying up by big uh, corporations of, of brands. And um, I, you know, most likely that's not gonna stop anytime soon because, you know, there's, it's, it's a real incentive to be able to cash out of your business, particularly if you don't have an heir or somebody who is um, willing and able to take it over, um, so I, you know, I hope that um, we can main, maintain a balance between big producers and and small family producers. Uh, I'm not saying that small family producers always make better wine, but I would say that. Uh, chances are they have less obstacle, fewer obstacles in their way to making better wine than, than big corporate producers. Um, and I do believe that, that uh, quality, the quality of wine is going to get better and better. You're going to see wine from more and more places in the U.S. Um, you know, we're, we have great wines from the Finger Lakes of, of New York that 20 years ago nobody would have predicted. Uh, Rieslings from, from Michigan, very good. Um, I think the wines are going to get better from Texas. Uh, uh, I've had good wines from, from New Mexico. 
uh, from Idaho. So, you know, I think we, um, you know, we'll be surprised at, at where wine is, is coming from, uh, you know, maybe 25 years from now. I've had good wine from New Jersey and Pennsylvania, Virginia, you know, it, it, it goes on. Um, I think that if it, part of part of that would happen if people just think about what would be the best wine from their place rather than competing with the best wines in the world. Uh, but you know, that's just my view. And do you have any um, different hopes for the Oregon wine industry, or is it kind of the same for your marriage? Um, I would say it's, it's the same thing, but I really hope in, in Oregon that, um, that people continue with uh, experimentation. I mean, we, it's been, we've established that you can make uh, brilliant Pinot Noir and, and Chardonnay in the Willamette Valley, but I want to know what else uh, you can get from Oregon. I've had, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the Gamay, uh, good uh, Gewurztraminer from the Columbia Gorge. Um, I, there's so many possibilities, uh, and I'm just really eager to see how it turns out. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I, I've told my kids I don't plan on dying because the story is too interesting, <laughs> story of life, and and uh, you know, yeah, that's I'm basically uh, always curious about the future, and I want to see what happens. Well, that's all the questions we have for you. Do you have anything else that you want to say? No, I think we, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, so thank you for, for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, thank you so much for sitting down with us and answering these questions. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.